Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring, the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. One of the hot topics in divorce today is financial abuse. Financial abuse is such an important topic because it not only exists in the marriage, but now the person who's the victim of financial abuse needs to deal with it somehow in a different way in the course of the divorce filing. We couldn't have a better guest with us than attorney Lisa Ziderman, who is in New York, but this topic is worldwide. So Lisa, thank you so much for being part of this discussion with our audience today. My pleasure. Thrilled to be here and talking about this particular topic because it's so important. So let's start with the basics. What does financial abuse look like in the course of a marriage? So we see financial abuse in a lot of different forms. I'll start the most obvious. All of a sudden, you have no access to any accounts. You might not even have access to your own earnings because perhaps you are being told or it's insisted upon that you place your earnings in an account to which you have no access. You also may be cut off from passwords. So perhaps before you had access to understanding what the balances in the accounts were, what the balances on credit cards were. You now don't have that particular ability. All of a sudden, you may be living on an allowance, and that allowance may be actually too little, unfair, not able to ensure that you can afford childcare, that you can afford to get to work, that you can afford to actually go to your therapist. You might not be able to afford your therapist anymore because that expense is now cut off. Someone is canceling your subscriptions to things. Someone is actually now taking over your accounts. Someone is not letting you actually run your own finances. And that financial abuse, which is what it is, is now leading to perhaps physical or emotional abuse. Wow. Okay. There's a lot that you just said. Let's break it down for a minute. So one of two things can happen. Either you start your marriage in a position of imposition, meaning you immediately get put on a budget. You have no access to anything or somehow something changes in the marriage. In either case, what financial abuse does leads to is an inability to live your own life as an individual within the context of a marriage. That's correct. That is 100% correct. And in the context, I mean, we often see it, as you pointed out at the beginning, in the context of a divorce. So very often we see that the wage earner or the main breadwinner has cut off access to the finances. So perhaps you had a joint account before and now the monies are no longer going into the joint account. And now the breadwinner or wage earner or the main breadwinner or wage earner is now determining which bills to pay and which bills not to pay and determining how much to put into a joint account or not putting in monies at all into a joint account. And so all of a sudden, as you are proceeding through your divorce, 
You have no access to money. You don't have access to pay an attorney. You don't have access to pay your therapist. You don't have access to, as I said, get childcare. You don't have access to be able to go to work even. So you are being affected by all of this and that is abusive. Here's what I see, and you tell me if you see things differently. So I am, as my audience knows, a mediator and a document preparation company in California. So I am limited in terms of my the type of relationship I can establish with my clients in terms of filing. I can't give legal advice, and there's certain things I actually can't file for. They're above my pay grade, so to speak. But in... In the case of this is how the marriage started, this was the norm being presented. Is this a different situation to get out of or transition out of than things were going along fine and now I don't have access to anything? Are these kind of two different situations uh, precipitated by something different in each case? Well, look, the arrangement may have been for a very long time that you didn't have access to funds, that you weren't actually, you know, some, some of our clients have never actually seen the tax return that's filed every year. And they ask for it and they're told they don't need to see it. Or they ask to understand and to sit down and to have a conversation about the finances and they're told it's none of their business and yeah. that they don't need to know. And they are asked, how are we spending this money? Or why can't we afford this? Or why can we afford this? But they aren't given that information. They are told, stay out of it. And sometimes when they push too hard, they are met with either emotional abuse, name calling, um, you know, or, or some demeaning way of speaking to them, or they are met with physical abuse and they are pushed or, or literally blocked or in their in their homes. It could be a variety of things. And then it may be that everything was swimmingly going fine. It was all fine. Maybe the marriage wasn't fine, but the finances were fine. And then they find themselves in a divorce. That may be a different situation. It could have been fine and then it wasn't. And now to put pressure on them to come to the table in a way that may not be advantageous, pressure is put financial pressure, and that could be abusive. So you may have two different situations going on here, or it just may be an extension of the first situation, which is why they're getting divorced in the first place. Right. And I and I really do understand that. I was wondering, though, if the norm had been established that I will tell you what to do with money, I will give you the money that you need, and if you need any more probably you're not getting any more. And by the way, I don't want to talk to you about money because that's not your gig. It's my gig. That to me might have a different consequence just in terms of the emotional side of the divorce than we've been going along fine, but some event triggered a change. And now I have no access to money. That's scarier to me. That means something's going on that you really need to know about other than maybe there's a cultural issue that establishes male dominance. And and so financially, th this is how male dominance plays out. What do you think about that? 
I think so. First of all, I think that it's not necessarily just male oriented. I mean, there are definitely times when it is, but there are also times when the female breadwinner is actually doing this. Um, so it's not necessarily a male versus a female. It's a mindset. And it should be important to note that because there there could be actually um, people out there who emotionally uh, who are financially abused that are actually male. And so it works in, in both directions. But I, I do agree with you that something may have triggered this change. And usually, frankly, the thing that triggered the the change is that the divorce is happening or that somebody believes that the divorce may be happening or happening in the future. And so things are starting to change. Or, um, wait a minute, or, I'm sorry to interrupt, and this is what I've seen too many times, Lisa, that the the... The, the financial dominant person, male or female, who cares? The financially dominant person got into hot water financially, maybe tried to do a deal, maybe tried to put a second mortgage on the house and didn't want to explain it to the other. And so there has been this change. That's scarier to me because something's going on than but it's all scary, uh, then this right. is the norm and I need to get out of it. So you need, okay. So, so now it's moving forward. Go so ahead. We, I'm sorry. So I'm going to go back to that. So we do see that happening sometimes, but that's the more rare situation as to emotional abuse that may be caused by embarrassment or by feeling less than because somebody has done something wrong or could have maybe done something differently and they feel embarrassed or they're upset about it. Um, that's not exactly the same in my mind. That's kind of a one-off situation that is going on. However, that idea of dishonesty, that idea of not being transparent when it's going wrong, when you know, you're starting to get way behind, when you're borrowing and you're not telling your spouse that you're borrowing, that you're taking a mortgage on the home that maybe was only in that spouse's name and both spouses were involved in that home. Those are, are troubling and, and certainly significant issues that have to be dealt with. And it's a lack of transparency overall that is really the problem there. There also could be an issue over budgeting, right? Those we see too where there's just one person who's spending more, one person who's earning more, and and there is just a lack of communication about it. But again, I, I think that's what triggers the, the financial abuse. I don't necessarily know that that was the financial abuse. That was the triggering I issue sometimes. Okay, I can see that. I, I understand. I can see that. All right, so be that as it may, we've now established um, a broad spectrum of financial abuse. The financially disadvantaged spouse decides it is time for a divorce. This is untenable. I have to move forward. I have no access to money. You're in New York. I'm in California. Uh, I know states have different laws. And then some things are kind of the same in most states. If the financially disadvantaged spouse wants to file for divorce, what are the options they have in um, uh, supporting at least the beginning stages of getting legal help on board uh, if they don't have access immediately to the bank account? 
So it's difficult. I'm going to say that they are going to have to usually turn to family or friends. Um, they are going to have to get some sort of a support system for the very early on initial retainer. Then once you get into court, you can actually make an application for what we call pendente lite support and pendente lite um, legal fees. I don't know if you have the same terminology. We in do. California. Explain to the audience. Yes. So that means interim legal fees and interim support. So very often the non-moneyed spouse is not going to have the same access um, to to the assets in order or the income for that matter in order to pay their lawyers or for support. And your lawyer can go in after being retained and submit an application for legal fees and for support so that your actual defense or your, um, you know, your actual case is not actually determined by who has the bigger pocketbook. And that's very important. It actually is so that there is some equality between the two of you. Now, will there ever be full equality? I'm going to tell you, probably not. Okay. That's just a reality of being the non-moneyed spouse. Okay. There is just so impossible to make that full equality. But the courts do actually look at this. And there is a presumption, for example, in New York, that the moneyed spouse will pay the non-moneyed spouse's legal fees. And so your your attorney will go in with an application that the court will consider and hopefully that you will receive so that you can actually move on and have your attorney work on your case. In California, um, in California, when, a, 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 when one attorney would like their attorney's fees paid by the other attorney, the higher earning spouse, yes, you have to go to court. You have to ask the court to make a ruling on it. They do. Now you actually have to get it. <laughs> do you have a mechanism in New York by which you can get it other th- after the court rules in your favor? So usually, okay, usually the, the spouse will pay because the judges, of course, will not be thrilled, and, and to say the least, if, if their order is not actually obeyed. Um, there, is, there is contempt applications that you can make. So that if you're not actually, if your attorney is not getting paid and the court has directed that payment be made, a contempt application can be put in. Incarceration is one of the um, remedies to that application. Judgments are also remedies to that application. And of course, you're going to have usually a very unhappy judge because that judge's orders are not being followed. Okay. That sounds encouraging in a very dark way. That sounds really encouraging to the financially disadvantaged spouse. All right. Now there's another side to this. So if the moneyed spouse has always been controlling, the concern with the other spouse is that he or she will not be forthcoming with all of the assets. How does this work? So that's what you need a great attorney for. So we conduct discovery. We usually have something called a deposition where your spouse is actually asked questions under oath about the finances. So first we gather all the documentation. We try to do a broad um, gathering of information. There's demands that are sent to the other side to which they need to respond. Documents arrive. We then go through the documentation. 
Um, sometimes we may have an accounting firm, a forensic accounting firm who actually we retain to work with us on this particular issue. Questions are then formulated so that we can understand the documentation and so that we can track and trace the assets. And usually we do a very good job of being able to do that. We we are very, you know, we inventory all the documents. We make sure that, for example, we have actually gone through each of the documents. We put together a marital estate chart. We try to track any separate property claims that come in. Um, if there's a business, we ask many questions, which are usually questions that are usually formulated by the forensic accounting firm. We review the tax returns to look for a, a, any other accounts. So. We put together the entire spectrum of, of the assets. And then when we have a good handle on that, and we may subpoena, for example, if documents are not turned over, we may subpoena from banks, from other institutions, um, you know, from we may have not what we call non-party depositions. We may have an accounting firm come in and testify if they were the ones who prepared the um uh, you know, the rec the um tax returns. We may subpoena employees. There's other ways of getting information if your spouse is not being forthcoming. And we do all of that. And then we put together what we call the marital estate chart. Hopefully we've now filled in all the numbers and we try to get to either a resolution. And if a resolution cannot be had for some reason, then we move it towards the next piece of it, which is court and, and litigation and trial. When the dis financially disadvantaged spouse says, I never really read the, the tax returns, which most people don't, by the way. I mean, there's a big trust factor in, okay, honey, show me where to sign. I'm sure you're taking care of the family quite well. I mean, if anybody has done this, please don't berate yourself. This is normal behavior in a marriage. And now you just have to kind of backtrack. So Lisa, what I have heard is the concern over hidden money, offshore money. Is the difference between doing financial research uh, easier uh, to do within this country than offshore? Without a doubt. I mean, it, of, of course it is. You, you know, it's easier, first of all, when it's in the state, and then it's easier when it's in the country and then it's less easy when it when it's offshore because you you have to do a lot more digging that's why you might have a forensic accounting firm working with with you to to actually access that information there's a again you know, i've done so many interviews with different people who work in the field of divorce and with a forensic accountant who's very well known in los angeles she was explaining how she had a case and it was, I mean, we're talking about high net worth. When you're involving a forensic accounting firm, you're, you're fairly high net worth. She just, your gut, your gut is so good at, first of all, guiding you a little bit when you're reading things to, hmm, hmm, it doesn't really feel, seem right. And so she followed her gut and she followed banking. And she went one step further. She started reading the bank statements for a certain period of time. And in doing that, she cited other accounts that weren't disclosed, which is so much the value 
of a forensic. Yes, they cost money, but if you have a high net worth divorce going on, it is worth it, don't you think, to get that other person involved? Without a doubt. Uh, you know, we have found many millions of dollars um, either by reviewing bank statements and then subpoenaing more documents. Uh, you know, years ago, I had a case where um, someone had filled out a net worth statement. And I remember going through the credit cards and tagging the credit card statements for a deposition um, because there were these charges and they were just not identifiable. It turned out the person had a property in Hawaii that they hadn't actually identified. And the charges were related to that property. So you need to look at the statements. You know, it's not just the um, the chase of getting the documents. I think a lot of attorneys sometimes do the chase, but then they don't actually review the documents. That's really bad because you need to review the documents. It's not about the chase. It's about the review of the documents that you that you now have sought. And sitting down and actually looking at the documents and making sure that, frankly, you have the staff to do that. You know, one of one of the things that I think that we pride ourselves on is that we have a team of people who can actually, when the documents roll in, they can examine the documents, they can look at it. I just spent the weekend actually looking at documents that had just rolled in, um, and I sent questions to the forensic accounting firm, and I spoke to the client, and now I have a whole host of questions based upon documents and testimony that didn't make sense, frankly, from from the person who actually has this particular investment. So it is a it is getting testimony, it is following up, it is making sure that you have really crossed those T's and dotted those I's. Such an excellent point about it's not just fulfilling the chase and getting the documents, but really reading them because things are hiding in plain sight quite often that if you take the time to read, you'll figure it out. And the follow-up excellent point you just made is if you have a, a, a fairly decent net worth to your uh, to your marriage, to your family, hiring a sole practitioner, as good as the sole practitioner attorney may be, that may not be the right way to go because you need other people participating. One person can only do so much and and do it correctly. I think that's 100% true. That, really that is the difficulty, I think, for um, sole practitioners is sometimes they just don't have the ability to um, take a case on and go the distance. Yes, if it's their only case, likely they do. But if once a case or two or three or five start rolling in, that becomes difficult, right? And you don't know when you take a case how big the case is going to be. And so it's really important that you have the backup. And or I do know a, a family law attorney in Los Angeles who is a sole practitioner, but she partners with other law firms. She decides what cases she wants. She doesn't take everything. She does litigate. And depending on the case, she will partner with a firm who has expertise and staff that she can um, farm out to. And, and, and that way she handles the cases. Yes, that's another good way to do it. Okay, so I know that you're not a therapist and I'm not a therapist, but we handle people's emotions constantly. Can we address the fear, the concern that the, I I say financially disadvantaged, if there's a better way of defining that person, please tell me and I'll, I'll switch language. But can we deal with the fear and what, what we can 
or what you normally say if somebody comes in and says, I'm, I'm scared to death. I don't know what's going to happen to me. If I file for divorce, he'll, he or she will kick me out. We have the children and it just mounts and mounts and mounts. How do you address the fear? So, you know, we talk about the different varying things that can actually occur as a result of serving those divorce papers. And we we can't guarantee what's going to happen because various things do happen. But we do know that we have a fairly reactive court system. And if there's an issue, there's ways to get orders of protection. There's ways to get back into the house. There's ways to exclude people who are abusive from the household um, so there, there are remedies to this. They may not happen overnight. They may take time to get there. But your other choice is what? That you're going to live with this person who's not transparent, who's abusive, who isn't giving you um, access to monies, who, you know, how many years is that going to go on? So at some point, you have to actually take take that next step and do it. And it's good to have, to your point, we're not therapists. So it's really important to be able to have a good therapist that you can work with or a good coach that you can work with. And I, I that's what we tell people. Right. And so it could even get to the extreme. There are children. There's a very fearful spouse who absolutely says I have to put an end to this and live my life a better way. Whatever that looks like, anything is better than being controlled by another adult and not being able to get my nails done or, you know, hair done, whatever the case may be. Something as simple as that, go out to lunch with somebody without having to justify the money that you're spending. If there is a fear of physical retribution, what are the recourses that that person has as they're filing to protect themselves. So I would say, number one, make sure that your attorney is aware if there is some sort of a fear that you're going to be in physical danger. Um, Make sure that you have told your therapist, make sure that you have a close friend that you confided in. Those are all really important so that you have someone to call um, make sure that you understand that you can call 911. I mean, in New York, you call 911 if somebody is physically harming you, because that should be your first call. If somebody is physically harming you or threatening you in some way in which you're fearful, then you you need to pick up the phone and call. And then we can deal with the next step, which is to be able to go into court and get what's called an order of protection, either restraining that person from communicating in that very um, derogatory and abusive manner or getting some sort of restraining order to exclude that person from the home, to stay away from your job, to stay away from you, all of those things. Those are all, um, you know, certainly real, real life situations. And we deal with those every day. But nothing can be done in terms of calling 911 unless an event has taken place. That's correct. You can't you can't call 911 unless an event has taken place. And it's very important that the event really has to to, has taken place, that there is some event you can't. And and look, we have this situation where people um, I don't know that they do it purposely, but they sometimes either. it gets out of proportion quickly in their minds. And so they may call 911 and perhaps it wasn't really something that really 
um, necessitated calling 911 or they went into court and got an order of protection and perhaps they were just so fearful that they decided to do that. But it is, these are serious actions that you're, you're taking. And so there needs to be a reason for them and you need to be truthful about it. That's very important because there are sometimes children involved. And when you're restraining somebody or removing somebody from the household, that is going to affect that person's parental rights also. And so just be mindful of that because one of the things that there's always to be mindful of is that in any custody case, it's also important that the person actually um, who is the custodial parent be fostering the relationship with the other parent. If you're calling 911 and nothing has really happened, or you're trying to to remove that person from being able to have you know contact with the children, that's not going to be fostering the relationship if nothing has happened. If, of course, there is danger, real danger, then you need to do that. You need to pick up the phone and call. I have never heard anybody say it's up to the custodial parent to foster the relationship, the parental relationship. Nicely put. Nicely put. We say put. it all the time because that's what the appellate division in New York says. Uh-huh. That is, in New York, one of the main factors in determining who is best suited to be the custodial parent is the parent who is best able to foster a relationship with the other parent. And there are definitely times when a parent loses custody because that parent is incapable or refuses to foster that relationship. I love when I learn something new in these interviews. Thank you for that. I want to conclude with that one example that is the toughest of all. I think. And that is there has been some physical abuse. 911 has never been called. Therefore, the the spouse who wants to file for divorce, the, the financially disadvantaged, knows dang well that if somebody comes to the door of the house or the place of business of their spouse to serve them with a petition for divorce, all hell is going to break loose in the household. So, Let's just talk this through a second to conclude this type of situation. Does the spouse who wants to file for divorce wait until there's another event so they can actually call 911? No. I I think that what happens is that spouse needs to be very clear that they feel that they're fearful, that they feel in danger, that they believe something is going to happen based upon the past. And they need to make it clear to their attorney. And there are certain steps that we take. So, for example, I don't file on a week uh, right before a weekend. Okay, why? Okay, I don't serve right before a weekend or during a weekend. Why? Because we can't get into the court fast enough, right? So there is. I may say, you know what? Why don't you go away for a few days and let things just cool down a little bit? Let your spouse know that you're leaving town. Will serve, um, take a few days, you know, or somebody is going away. This is a good time to serve because there's a cooling off period so that everybody is not as angry. There's lots of different ways to deal with this particular issue. Maybe you have a friend who's nearby so that you can call that friend and go to that friend's house if you feel you're in danger. Maybe you call a parent or a family member so that they're in the house at the time that all of this is going down. So there are ways to deal with this, but you have to communicate that problem. Those are excellent suggestions. 
Thank you. Thank you. So we've come to the end of our time and it went like five minutes. This was been, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Lisa, you're in New York, but there are people listening who live in New York. Your information will be in the show notes, but for those people who simply like to write things down as they're listening, best way to contact you. So they certainly can go to my website, which is lisaziderman.com, which is the L-I-S-A-Z-E-I-D-E-R-M-A-N.com. They can use my email, which is lz at mzw-law.com, or they can call at 914-455-1000. Thank you. I, again, I love when I learn something new in these interviews. So you were great, Lisa. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening. As always, uh, please send this to anybody you know who will benefit from this discussion. Please subscribe if you have not. And also on my website, theamicabledivorceexpert.com, through SpeakerPipe, you can send me questions, which I will address either in a blog or in a follow-up interview. And also, if there are topics you would like us to discuss, I'm always open to that. And you know, as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves, be kind to your spouse, and cherish your children above all else.